Colossians chapter 2, we'll be reading here the first 15 verses of the chapter. Um, But I I will say now that our focus this morning will be just on the 12th verse. So we come now to Colossians 2, verse 1. And beloved, I'd remind you, even as we come, that this is the inerrant, infallible, the inspired word of our God. There are so so many words today in our world. So many things that are spoken. But this word alone, we're told, never fades. This word is a foundation that you and I can trust entirely. And so it is our blessing, our privilege, and our solemn obligation to be under it. And so hear the word of our God. Colossians 2, starting here at the first verse. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Thus far the reading of God's word this morning. May he bless it to us. Well, as we come to this text... I remind you, of course, that this is the Word of God. And the Word of God, as it comes before us, comes to us not in isolation. Uh, The whole text of Colossians is certainly coherent. The divine author has inspired it so. And so you'll pardon me for here making perhaps a lengthier introduction. Uh, What is it that this epistle is about? What do we have before us here in the Word of God? I'd remind you, of course, that as we look at this epistle, that this is an epistle that is combative. Uh, This is an epistle that sets before us an argument, an argument against false teaching. And for our purposes this morning, I won't dwell too much on the system of doctrine, the system of theology that the apostle is combating. But let let me set before you some very basic themes that come to us from this epistle that show us the kind of errors that the apostle is dealing with. As he writes under inspiration of God's Spirit, the Apostle is dealing with those who are Gnostics. What are Gnostics? These are those who, as some scholars would put it, they had a theosophy. They were part theological, part philosophical. And here's what they believed. Without giving you the full system, they believed that there were those who had to attain gradually, personally, and exclusively more knowledge in order to access the divine. And so here's what that means. That means that your obligation is to move personally by yourself through these various levels of understanding. And the entailment is very basic. Somebody who perhaps has progressed, let's say, to the third stage has truth that somebody in the second stage doesn't possess. 
And because it's exclusive, because it's mysterious, because it's perfectly individualized, that means what is true to one person at stage three is not necessarily true to a person at stage two. You see that? What's, what's true to these ones is not necessarily true to somebody else. How does the apostle respond to that? He says to the church in Colossae, chapter 1, verse 5, that hope which is in you, which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. Here's what the apostle says. The truth of Christianity is something that has been published abroad. It is objective and it is not something so subjective as these false teachers would have you believe. In other words, in other words, there's no such thing as a personal truth. The truth that is the Colossians' hope is an objective truth, a truth that is known to all who are under the sound of its preaching. That's the first point. But these ones also, they were teaching this idea that that really the way to attain more fulfillment, the way to attain access to the divine, is really through self-reflection. And so they need to know themselves first and foremost. They take the oracle at Delphi. Know thyself. And they say that really is the pinnacle of human maturity. And how does the apostle respond? Well, if you're to know yourself, here's what the Christian must know. Christ in you. The hope of glory. The Christian is not seeking to know himself, but even if he is looking inward, the apostle says you must know the Christ who dwells within. The self is not an end in itself. These Gnostics also taught, because of their cosmogony, their belief about how everything came into existence, that that matter, concrete things, were of necessity evil. They were wicked things. And so, here's what that means. That means that we need to be transcendent. We need to move beyond these concrete things. Because these things are evil of themselves. How does the apostle respond? He says very pointedly, By him, that is Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. When you look at matter, in other words, the apostle says you are to see that these things have been created by a good God. And they've been created for his purpose. But there's something even far more nefarious that lies even behind that. This denial of matter and saying that all these things that are physical are evil. What does that do to the human body? Well, the Gnostics were emphatic. The human body is a prison. The human body, its biological constitution is inherently evil, and you need to transcend your biology. You need to move beyond your biology. How does the apostle respond? This non-binary ideal, the apostle puts it very pointedly to the church. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your own wives. The point is, the ideal is not to be non-binary. And then you take this. Take what the Apostle says about all of those structures that are in society. The Gnostics said all of those structures are really pointless. Those things are evil inherently. We need to move beyond them as well. What does the Apostle say? Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Masters, deal well with your servants. Servants, obey your masters. You see what the Apostle is doing. At every point, he's saying there's no such thing as a subjective or a personal truth. At every point, he's saying when you look at the material world, you're supposed to see that these things have been created by God and for God. When you think about yourself, you're supposed to recognize that God has created you to be functioning in this creation as he has ordained. And that these things are supposed to be done all for the glory of God. All that the Lord here, as he puts it to us here, would see that we're doing all things that please him. Well, that I went through that with you to tell you that what you have in this text is perhaps one of the most relevant things I could set in front of you. Our forebears had no idea 
about some of the confusion that abounds in our generation. But it's thrilling for me to tell you that the Word of God certainly deals with it. At every point, this world that we live in, that denies all of these things and that takes up all of the Gnostic dogmas that I've just reiterated to you, the Word of God gives a concrete response to it all. And we have it in our text this morning. These Gnostics, to go even further, they were ones who were purely spiritual, in the sense that they really just wanted to embrace the spiritualized aspects of life. So what did that mean? Well, that meant that they had all kinds of beliefs about what it meant to be spiritual. Maybe you believed in angels. Maybe you believed in in other creatures, other beings. That's what it meant to be spiritual. Just as long as you believe in something that's invisible, that's what's mattered. How does the apostle respond? All things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether visible or invisible, they are all, if they are real, they are all intimately tied to Christ as he has created them and for his purposes. What about the evil spirits? Know what the apostle says. And having spoiled principalities and powers, Christ made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. Here's what the apostle says very pointedly. This kind of loose spirituality is entirely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Entirely contrary. But then you come to this last, this final aspect of the Colossian heresy that brings us to our theme this morning. These ones were teaching that really the way to God is through empty, through base ritual. Show up on the Lord's Day. Do certain things that, that the church would have you do. Observe certain sacraments or ordinances. That was the sum total of religion. Religion had no more meaning than beyond the ritual. That was it. Well, then that brings us to our text this morning. These ones were talking much about circumcision. And what does the apostle say? He says, when you think about circumcision, you are to be thinking of this, this ritual, this ordinance given by God to the church underage, you are to be thinking of it in terms that lead you back to Jesus Christ. You are to be thinking about these things not as an end in itself, but as something that points you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not empty ritual. That's insufficient. Well, then the Gnostic turns around and he says, well, well that's perfectly fine. Maybe, maybe that's how we're supposed to be thinking about circumcision, but what about baptism? We're Christians, after all. We believe in baptism. And that brings us then to our text this morning, that verse 12. Here the apostle is laboring to show that in the external sign, there are real spiritual realities that are set before the believer that he must know. And how does he do that? Take what he says in the very beginning. He says, buried with him, that is Christ, in baptism. And so the apostle, after showing that Christ is to be viewed even in the Old Testament sacrament, that is circumcision, he shows that Christ is in some sense in view in baptism. And again, he's underscoring here the importance that bare ritual is not Christian. Ritual, even here, such as the ordinance of baptism, must be tied, because it is tied in its institution, back to Christ. It must lead the believer to think back of Christ. It's not a sign that's an end of itself. And he says on, Wherein also ye are risen with him. This is another aspect of baptism that he has in view here. And again, he ties this aspect back to Christ, to the death and to the resurrection of Christ. It is not an empty ceremony for the apostle. But then thirdly and finally, I want you to notice this. He writes, Through the faith of the operation of God, who raised him from the dead. Now I want you to notice here, this is, this is something that qualifies both aspects, being buried with Christ and being risen with Christ. And he says, being buried and risen with Christ is, as he says here, through the faith of the operation of God. And what's striking about that phrase is, the word operation of God, you could translate it literally, through faith which is the operation of God. 
This is the instrument, as it were, that really allows the believer to see Christ in the ordinance of baptism. It is through this faith that is of the operation of God. And note, friend, how he qualifies even that. This God who imparts faith is the God, he says here, who hath raised him, that is Jesus Christ, from the dead. Beloved, if we hold all of these things together, what do we find? Well, we find here that the apostle is giving a a, a stringent antidote to formalism. If we would look at circumcision, but more to our purposes this morning, if we would look to baptism and we don't see Christ in it, this is a text that soundly, thoroughly rebukes us. The apostle says, you do not know this sacrament unless you see Christ in it. And you see also how he shows this. He shows this to a church that is encountering time and time again these errors of personal truth, subjectivity, denial of concrete reality. He says, I, you need to see these things here. This is intensely relevant. Intensely relevant for the church in Colossae, most obviously, but certainly it's intensely relevant for ourselves. The apostle, as he writes under inspiration of God's Spirit, says this is in part the antidote to all of those errors that are surrounding you. All of those false teachings that are being foisted upon you as soon as you leave these doors. Part of the antidote to all of them, strikingly, is to look even at baptism and see their Christ. And even more staggeringly, not only to see Christ in the ordinance, but to see union with Christ in the ordinance. That's precisely our theme for this morning. Baptism signifies and seals the believer's union with Christ. Note what the apostle says again in the 12th verse. Buried with him, risen with him. In fact, as you look at the entire epistle of Colossians, the words with him and in him, Certainly, they're all throughout the New Testament, but in a very concentrated, concentrated sense, they're in this epistle. The apostle is always speaking here about being in Christ, being with Christ, being united to Him. Our life hidden in Christ. Christ, who is our life. All of these phrases, both outside of our text and in it, urge us to think about these things as they show to us our union with the Savior. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, there are three points that I have to see. As we contemplate this union, the apostle brings it to us, first of all, in terms of the internment of Christ, his burial. Then the invigoration, the the bringing back from dead to life, that also being represented in baptism, and that also being something in which the believer is united to Christ. And then thirdly, I want us to see the instrument. The instrument that the apostle has in view for those who would use the sacrament of right, for those who are truly united to the Savior. And so take, first of all, the internment. The apostle says here pointedly, be buried with him in baptism. Now those are five words, five words that are quite straightforward, but they're five words that are laden with meaning. Take just the first layer of meaning that's in this text. The apostle is saying there is some connection between the sacrament of baptism and Christ's burial. That's the first layer, the most obvious layer. But then as the apostle is speaking to the church in Colossae, he comes to the second layer and he says, the believer himself is buried with Christ in some sense. Five words that are incredibly laden theologically. What does he mean? Well, friend, I want you to notice here that as the scriptures present to us the waters of baptism, the scriptures speak always as the waters of baptism being the waters of cleansing. You could even say, as our forebears did, it really sets before us the blood of Christ, as he is the one who has opened that fountain open for sin and for uncleanness. It's not the tomb. The waters don't represent the sepulchre. At every point, they represent the blood of Christ, the cleansing that comes to us through the atoning work of the Savior. But nevertheless, the apostle here, and also you remember in Romans 6, speaks about baptism in relation 
to burial. And why would that be? I think to understand this, beloved, you need to remember, of course, that the burial of Christ genuinely was the last stage, the final step of Christ's humiliation. It wasn't only the cross, but it was his internment in the sepulcher. It was his final stage of humiliation before his resurrection. And and really, as you look at this, then whenever the apostle says, as he does in Romans 6, buried with him in baptism into death, we understand what the apostle is saying. He has behind it the idea that the sepulcher not of itself is important, but what it represents, the actual death of Christ. Maybe put it differently. When we think of the burial of Christ, what are we supposed to think of? Or if we're supposed to be thinking of the certainty of Christ's death. He was not, as the thieves were, languishing, wounded, but still living. No, Christ was dead. So dead that he was interred, buried. And the apostle in Romans 6 makes this point. It's a powerful point. But that's precisely how the believer is to think of himself with Christ. The believer is not to think of himself as wounded, perhaps. As languishing, maybe, on the cross. But as dead and as buried. Now, friend, as you look at this text and holding it with what you have in Romans 6, what you find here is very pointed. We are buried with him by baptism into death. Our old man is crucified with him. We be dead, he says here. Not wounded, we be dead with Christ. And that's manifestly what the apostle has in view here. Whatever we mean, whenever we're speaking here about our union with Christ, we are actually dead, not wounded. We are dead so as even to be buried with the Lord. And what you find here then is that baptism for the apostle signifies the believer's union with Christ in his death. And what do we mean by that? Well, friend, as we look at union with Christ, there are two ways of thinking about it. The scriptures hold out to us the idea that union with Christ comes to us forensically or legally and also renovatively or transformatively. Put it very pointedly. Legally, we are united to Christ. How so? We're united to Christ because, of course, remission of sins, forgiveness of sins comes only through him. And take even what you have in Colossians 2.14. When the apostle thinks... When the Apostle thinks, as he does in Colossians 2, much about union with Christ, here's one way of his thinking. Look at verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now what's striking about that, of course, is even if the Apostle has in view the ceremonies of the Old Covenant, such as the sacrificial system, the laws of ritual cleansing and so forth, He still describes them as being contrary to us, against us. And why is that? The writer of the Hebrews is very clear. Those ordinances always set before the man his sin. It was always supposed to set before him and his conscience his sin. And so as they are removed by the death of Christ, as they are removed in the new covenant age, the sense is, so too has conscience been satiated. But how so? The Apostle says here, it is through Christ nailing it to his cross. The Apostle Peter is even clearer. Christ also hath once once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Again, Peter also reminds us there that this Christ took upon himself our sins in his own body on the tree. Beloved, our first step to understand what it means to be united to Christ in his death is to recognize that legally, legally, Christ took all of the debt that was owing to you and to I, if we are God's people, upon himself. Legally, he was judged in our stead. Our accounts imputed to him. Friend, As you think about this, then, you see what the Apostle is saying. Even though you yourself did not die on the tree, God certainly dealt with your debt, your debt, your sins that you have committed, your sins that you will commit if you're in Christ. He actually dealt with them 
on the cross. Christ identified with you so as to be united to you to take upon himself your full debt. That's the first aspect of being united with Christ that we can't miss. The believer here is told Christ died in your stead. Legally, you died with him. Now, there's another aspect, as I said to you already. When we think about union with Christ, we think about renovation. We think about transformation. And certainly that too is in view in this text. We are united to Christ not only legally, but we're also united to Christ that we might be transformed into his likeness. And even in death, and what's striking about this is that seems to be very much the point of Romans 6, that in the death of Christ, we are so united to him that that marks the death of something in us. You remember the apostle calls us to mortify our members. What he means there, the word mortify, it's the same word from which we get the idea of mortician. Death is primarily in view. And so he is saying pointedly there, put to death your members. And he's thinking there, of course, about sin. You are to die, as we read in Romans 6, to sin. And as the apostle says there in Romans 6 again, it is in the death of Christ that we are to see our death to sin. Not only to the curse that sin brings. That's the legal aspect of our union with Christ, and that's certain. But in our text, and also in Romans 6, the idea primarily is this, that in the death of Christ, the believer's mortification of sin is secured. When you and I look at the death of Christ, you and I are to see not only are we dead, in the sense that all that was owing to the law of God is really dealt with at Calvary. But the apostle is very pointed. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are to see that you there died to sin. Meaning there, that the dominion of sin was actually broken. Friend, the idea is, is so very basic in one sense. It's that idea that I read to you even from 1 Peter. Christ bare our sins in his own body on the tree, but note what he says there. Not to deal with guilt, but being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes we're healed. The death of Christ has not only procured our justification, according to the lips of the apostles, the death of Christ, the death of Christ has secured our being dead to sin and living under righteousness. My friend, what does this look like then? The analogy that comes to us from Scripture itself, I think, is quite clear. When in Ephesians 5, the apostle is speaking about union, he comes, of course, to the analogy of marriage. He says that is how one can think of their union with Christ. Think of a marital union. Think, perhaps, just for a moment, of, of a woman mired in incredible debt. She has nothing beautiful about her. She's the woman that you find described in Ezekiel 16. A woman despised by others. A woman who has nothing really to her name. A woman who is perfectly impoverished. And then imagine a king coming to that woman and saying, I would have you as my wife. Once the king does that, once he, once he unites himself to this woman, what does that mean? He takes upon himself the responsibility to pay her debt and to provide everything for her good. Beloved, that is a picture of union with Christ as we see it in our text. When the believer is united to Christ, and we can think about union with Christ in various ways, we can think about union with Christ in terms of the decree. In Ephesians 1, we're told we were elected in Christ Jesus. That is, Christ, by term, in terms of the decree, has already decided he would be united to a people. He would undertake for them all that was necessary for their salvation. He would pay it as if it were his debt to pay. We don't speak like that, do we, too often? But our forebears were quite clear in this. When Christ says, I will undertake, be surety for my people, he says, I will take upon their debt so as to discharge it in every regard. We can think about union with Christ, not only in the decree, but we can think about it even at Calvary. When in time, all of these things were brought to Christ as surety for his people and really dealt with atoning, all his atoning work, sufficient to pay the debt of his people. And then we can think about, of course, in time. 
when the believer is actually united to Christ through that saving and vital faith in the work of the Spirit of God. But in every case, beloved, the believer cannot miss this point. Christ says with regard to his own, I will undertake for their every need. I will pay their debt. And I will beautify those whom I've purchased. Beloved, in that way, we are united to Christ in death. But we notice here, as you look then at the subject of baptism, which is the subject of Colossians 2, what are we supposed to think? The apostle says here that the ordinance of baptism is supposed to speak to us that we are buried with Christ, dead with Christ, as he says in Romans 6. How are we then supposed to think about the sacrament? Well, friend, should it not make us, as we look at baptism, see how odious sin really is? That Christ must, like a fountain, be opened. That he might cleanse his people. Water would not do the turn. All kinds of self-reformation would not serve the purpose. The Son of God must shed his blood that those sins that you and I think so lightly of might be cleansed. Well, but it's not a small thing then, is it, when we observe a sign that shows us our death in the death of Christ. And it should show us as well, should it not, how needful we are for that cleansing to be continually applied. Oh, beloved, that fountain must be opened and ever opened, not only to deal not only to deal with our legal debt, but really to deal with that cleansing work that must be ongoing. When the apostle thinks of his death in Christ, he writes, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That last phrase I call your attention to. When the apostle thinks of his death to Christ, he cannot think about it in any other terms, death in Christ rather, in any other terms than the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The love of Christ manifestly set before us, just as much as the odiousness of sin. But what then of that next phrase? The apostle says we are buried with him, but note what he says in the very next line. Wherein also ye are risen with him. And this teaches us, of course, that baptism signifies the believer's union with Christ in resurrection. He's still speaking about the ordinance. But the question, of course, is how, how are we supposed to understand that? How are we supposed to understand our union with Christ in his resurrection? And again, I'd bring to you those categories that I just mentioned before, that legal and that transformative aspect. Take the legal aspect first of all. Now, when we think about justification, when we think about the imputed righteousness of Christ, whereby a sinner who was legally in debt to the law of God is now the, has now the righteousness of Christ applied to his account, credited to his account, as it were, we think, of course, the substance of that imputation, the righteousness that is actually given, is, of course, that which Christ acquired as our mediator in his life and in his death. We think... Theologically, if you're of a mind to look these things up, of the passive and active aspects of Christ's righteousness. But when we think about justification, we come across another text, uh, such as what you have there in Romans 4. Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our justification. What do we make of that? If the matter, if you like, if the substance of our justification, if the righteousness that's imputed to us is really that which is acquired in the life and death of Christ, if that's the matter of justification, what relationship then does the resurrection have with, with um, our justification? And the apostle points it very pointedly. There is some connection. Now how so? What's striking as you come to 1 Timothy 3.16, we come to some kind of answer. God was manifest in the flesh, speaking there of Christ, justified in the spirit. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. 
Thomas Goodwin on this text writes thus. He says, if that Christ be made sin for us and satisfied for it, there must then some act pass whereby Christ should be pronounced acquitted for our sins, for which he undertook to satisfy. In the resurrection, God that once charged him with those sins hath now fully discharged him of them. You see what he's saying. It's the very same thing that you have in the beginning of Romans. When we think of the justification of Christ, of course, it's not like our justification, where our sins are removed, that the righteousness of Christ might be applied. But as Goodwin reminds us, there is a sense in which, of course, as Christ took upon himself, as the Apostle puts it, was even made sin that his people might really be atoned for. There comes a time when God will then release him from that connection with our sin. And when was that? Well, it was when he was powerfully declared at his resurrection. To come, no more, as the Apostle in the the writer of the Hebrews says, coming, as it were, to deal with sin. Coming in a new way. He, as Goodwin continues to write, we were to be justified and so to be justified first in Christ and with him as a public or a common person. Beloved, when you think about the resurrection of Christ, Goodwin reminds us here, you are to see there the pronouncement of justification, not the matter of it that's secured in the life and death of Christ, but the pronouncement of righteousness that you and I enjoy if we are united to Christ, is really in this pronouncement that all the sins that Christ undertook for are indeed acquitted. The Lord God has said, these things, these things are fully atoned for. And so, friend, when the apostle speaks here, being risen with him, the idea is that the acquittal is certain. And the resurrection of Christ, in his resurrection, your acquittal, is just as certain. Now, when we think about union with Christ, I've told you that you think about it legally and you also think about it transformatively. And so we think here also about the idea that is set before us in the text that we are raised with Christ, not just in terms of our justification, but raised with Christ in terms of our sanctification. And note how the apostles put this. Verse 13 of chapter 2 of our text You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. Know what he says here. The quickening grace that you Colossians enjoy as you're united to Christ is a quickening that you've enjoyed with Christ. That new life that has come to you, it is coming to you because you are raised with him. Take Ephesians 2. When we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. The Apostle is saying, again, this quickening grace comes through the idea that you are united to Christ. Even as he was quickened, even as you, as he was raised, so are you. When we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. Again, Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, now note this, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Note how the apostle joins the idea that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and therefore his petition is, let the Lord God then make you perfect under every good work. In all of these texts, what do you have? You have the idea that the believer is so united to Christ that that vivifying power, that vivifying power that even brings sinners from the dead really flows from that union. My friend, as you look at this text, what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that Christ's resurrection, Christ's resurrection, as the apostles put it here, is our quickening. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, friend, what we see here What we see here then is that Jesus Christ has secured not only all that was necessary to deal with the law, not only necessary to the procurement of our justification and its pronouncement, but we find here genuinely that every quickening grace, every quickening grace, every mortifying grace, flows only through this union. But I want us to close as the Apostle does, looking here at the instrument. Now, beloved, before I go any further, let me remind you 
Part of, the, part of the heresy that this church was encountering was the idea that, that formalism in and of itself, this, this ritual observance in and of itself, was what was most important. So, circumcision. The end of circumcision is circumcision itself. And by application, the end of baptism is baptism itself. That's what brings us to God. Just the ritual. But I want you to notice this third line. Through the faith, he says here, of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. The word through there, it's the idea is there, you could translate the preposition by. The sense is, this is the instrumental cause. This is the instrument by which you and I are so united to Christ, as is represented, signed, and sealed in baptism. You and I are only partakers of that spiritual death and that spiritual life that comes to us through union with Christ through this. Now what is this? Through the faith of the operation of God. As I've already said to you, through that faith which is the operation of God. Note what he's saying. The ritual of itself is insufficient. What is required for you to know this union, this union that causes you to die to sin as much as it does causes you to be free from the curse of the law, this union that causes you to really be raised and pronounced just, and so also quickened by the grace of God, this union that is really set before us in baptism only comes to us by a spirit-wrought faith. Beloved, what I've just articulated to you is so staggeringly clear, so refreshingly clear, but so very few believe it. This is what the Apostle says, very pointedly. I'm not saying this because I'm a Protestant, though I am a Protestant. I'm not saying these things because, because I have any desire to make anyone uncomfortable. But the Apostle says it very pointedly here. Without this faith... Baptism does not seal or signify to you union with Christ. They're not my words. They're the apostles' words. It must be this union is only consummate really through this spirit-wrought faith. Baptism of itself will not save. Well, but I don't know about you, but this is such a refreshing text. As he speaks about baptism, he reminds us it is a vital faith that is required. And only that. By the way, he's no Arminian, is he? When he looks at faith, it is not a creature of man's free will. Faith that saves is the operation of God and the operation of God alone. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, then this reminds us what we've said already, that this is speaking to us of union, but it's telling us how this union is consummate. Union signified in baptism is only by a spirit-wrought faith. He tells us pointedly, it must be the operation of God, just as he does in Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The, the idea that that is a gift of God is not only part of just the salvation that is enjoyed, but all aspects of salvation, the instrument that lays hold of salvation as well as salvation itself, it is all of God. Again, the Apostle puts it this way, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. This faith that really joins us to Jesus Christ is that which does not emerge from man's free will. It must be spirit-wrought. And beloved, as we think about this, it stands to reason that that's the case. How could anything that you or I would do affect such a glorious union? A union that unites us so intimately to Jesus Christ. It must only be of God. But then take the instrument. In Acts 13, we're told this. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, which he could not be justified by the law. Note what he says there. Forgiveness of sins is preached through Christ. But beloved, to whom? To whom? Is justification given only to those, he says here, that believe, that are possessed of the Spirit-wrought faith. Guys, the sense in Scripture, as we have it in front of us here, is that faith is the hand that lays hold of Christ. 
Faith is that consummating act by which the union with Christ in his death and resurrection certainly takes place. Now as we come to a close, what does this text hold out to us? One, as the theme set before us is union with Christ, it asks us pointedly, is this the union that you prefer above all else? Is being united to Christ that thing that you crave above all other unions that you might have? Let's say union with the world, union with worldly wisdom, union with others, other creatures, even, uh, it's a bit confusing, but even with yourself, what union do you crave above every other? When the apostle sets these things before the church in Colossae, he says, this is the one thing that is needful. But the second question, of course, is, is are we those who are possessed of this faith that is the operation of God? And the apostle tells us pointedly, that kind of faith that really unites us to Christ, it is that faith that causes us to die to sin and to live under righteousness. This is a faith that is not purely abstract. It's a faith that is working. If it is a faith that is the operation of God, because it unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ, of necessity, of necessity, it leads us to put sin to death and to live to righteousness. The friend for the believer, there is so much. There's so much in this text by way of comfort. I want you to notice, friend, as we've said already, the apostle has in view this idea that your union with Christ has this legal aspect to it in which he stands on your behalf. He stands on your behalf so as to take upon himself all the pains of the second death that you might go free. Beloved, he's done this for his people. Fallen angels will know for eternity the pains of the second death. Fallen men who are reprobate who will never come to Christ for everlasting years will know the pains of the second death. But because Christ has undertaken for his people, not one of his people will know even a drop of that bitter cup that he drank on their behalf. Not one drop. Beloved, I don't know. I don't know how to communicate these things to you other than just to give you the plain words of Scripture. Is this not a glorious truth? Is it not something that should lead us to praise that our God has caused it to be so that his own would not even taste the drop, a single drop of that cup which Christ drank to the dregs? But even there, we can go beyond that, can't we? That would be the legal aspect of our union with Christ. Take the transformative. Take, friend, what the apostle says here. You are quickened together with Christ. The quickening, the, the, the new life that you enjoy, that is only through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Let me read to you what Ebenezer Erskine, Ralph Erskine rather put it. He says, O believer, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. O it is strange the grace that is in him is in thee, as the life that is in the heart is in the toe, the foot, the utmost members. There is a communication of vital strength and influences from the heart and head to all members of the body. So the believer's grace is in Christ, and the grace that is in Christ is in the believer. You who want to put sin to death this morning, to live under righteousness, when Christ says, I am your head, when Christ says, you are my bodies, and this is the point of of Erskine's quote, that same vital life, those same vital life-giving properties flow through the head just as they do through the members. Yes, of course, Christ possessed these things without measure. But note this. 
Note this, that vital strength will flow through every member nonetheless. If the union is real, that vital strength must flow to every member, even to the least. And beloved, that's for our comfort. If we're united to Christ, that work of killing sin and living to God is certain because of the head to whom you are united. Well, as we close, we are coming, of course, to baptism and the ordinance of baptism. And this text, of course, sets before us this ordinance, not just union with Christ, but but union with Christ as we're supposed to see it in the sacrament. And so how do we see it here? Well, beloved, what you see here in this text, very pointedly, is everything that I've just described. As the believer looks at baptism with that faith, they are supposed to see just as real as the waters of baptism are applied, so also just as real have they died with Christ. So also have they been raised with Christ. And in every legal and in transformative way, we can imagine. The union is just as real as what the sacrament signifies to us this morning. What the apostle urges us then to remember, this is not merely signs and symbols. These are seals as well. And how are these seals to us? Well, they're seals to us, and we improve our baptisms even in a moment like this, by laying hold of the truths that are signified in baptism by faith. Beloved, as we observe this baptism, it will do us no good unless our faith is looking to Jesus Christ and to the promise of union with him that is offered to us in the gospel. And so, this morning as Theo comes forward, as as we observe the sacrament, beloved, it's not a bare ritual. It is a sign and seal from on high that this union that is the believer's life and death, life unto God and death unto sin is real. And may we be people then who see it as such. But the last application, of course, that comes to us is the obligation to make use of these things by faith. Beloved, the apostle will not describe to us any aspect of baptism without telling us the union that is signified here is not through the water itself. It is through that faith that is the operation of God. And so, beloved, the call is to come to Christ. The call is to embrace him and the promises of union with him now by faith. This is the only way that these things sign and signify to ourselves individually that these blessed truths are ours. And may we then take hold of Christ, either for the first time or may we do so in a renewed way this morning as we observe this sacrament of his institution. Amen. We'll continue by returning to the throne of grace together. Um, and after, after I pray, I would ask uh, Mr. Theo Dixon if he would come forward. Let's stand to pray to the Lord. Our gracious and our eternal God, we come before you with thanksgiving, thankful that you are a God who has secured your people's redemption. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that this union is real. We thank you that truly, as Christ has died and has paid to the full all that we owed to the law, we thank you, Father, then, that we may go free, that all has been dealt with. And we thank you, Father, as well, that in this union, that which we crave, that we might live more to God and put to death sin in ourselves, that even that is secured. Father, we thank you that nothing rests upon any merit that we ourselves could procure. And Lord, we thank you as well that in your grace, you are a God who does impart that faith that lays hold of Christ, even to sinners. And Lord, we ask that you would be gracious to us then, even in this assembly, either by imparting it now for the first time to some, or certainly enlivening it in others. Father, we pray that as we come to the sacrament of baptism, that you would fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray.
Bless us in this time as we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are delighted to observe um, the sacrament of baptism, delighted to welcome uh, Theo uh, into communicant church membership as well, as we will be doing simultaneously. And so our first order of business is to set before Theo um, the terms of communicant membership. And so I'll read them uh, to you now, Theo, and then uh, you can respond after after each term. The first is, I accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the word of God, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only Redeemer of men, supreme in church and state, and in dependence on divine grace, I take him as my Savior and Lord. I do. I promise by divine grace to show a teachable and submissive spirit to the teachings of the Holy Scripture, as set forth in the testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. I will. I promise that by the help of the Holy Spirit, I will endeavor to live a life consistent with my profession. I will. As we come to the sacrament itself, uh, our code encourages us just to meditate briefly um, on the sacrament, and so I will be just brief. Beloved, when we think of the sacrament, I think so often among ourselves we, we, uh, we think about why we baptize infants, and certainly that's important, um, but as we saw, I trust, this morning, the scriptures hold out to us more than just the subject of baptism, more than those who are only to be baptized. It shows us the significance of the sacrament itself. And as we think about baptism, you know, we would observe it. I'd read to you just briefly what you have here in the Genevan Catechism. When we think about baptism, we are to think, of course, that the death and resurrection of Christ are taken together in this sign. His death hath this regenerative efficacy that by means of it our old man is crucified and the viciosity of our nature in a manner buried so as no more to be in vigor in us. Our reformation to a new life so as to obey the righteousness of God is the result of the resurrection. And so, beloved, as we observe the sacrament, as not only Theo, but all in the congregation do so, this is what we are to keep our eyes upon as we look by faith. The death and the resurrection of Christ and our union by faith with him in these things. We'll come to prayer. um, And after prayer, I'd ask uh, Theo if you would kneel. Let's stand once more to go to the throne of grace. Our gracious and our eternal God, we come before you with thanksgiving. Father, we are thankful that you have given to your church these signs and seals that are for the edification of your people. And Lord, we do ask, knowing that the bare sign of itself will do us no good, that you would cause us to look by faith and lay hold by faith upon Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful. Thankful that Jesus Christ has been pleased and is still pleased to be united to his home. And Lord, even as we now observe the sacrament, we pray that that which it signs and signifies will be applied even in greater measure now to us. So we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Go ahead and kneel. Theo Benjamin Dixon, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's continue in prayer. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you that you are a God who does cleanse guilty and hell-deserving sinners. 
in that fountain that was open for sin and for uncleanness. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is pleased to call even these hell-deserving ones after your name. And, oh God, we do pray uh, that you would be gracious to us, gracious to us by continuing to apply to us that which was purchased by Christ. And, Father, we ask as well, especially for Theo even this morning, that you would richly bless him, Father, we thank you for the work of grace that you've already wrought. And we ask that as he meditates on his baptism and on union with Christ signified therein, that even now he would find himself encouraged to die more to sin and to live unto Christ. That even now he would know more and more that assurance of pardon that Christ has fulfilled all, that he might stand righteous in your sight. Father, bless us, we ask, as a congregation of your people. Help us to be encouragers one another in these things. And we ask, O oh, merciful God, be with us. Be with us that we may lay hold of Christ by faith even now. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.